Hi, this is your host, Sophia Vidal, on the first episode of The First Cut, where we interview top medical professionals, getting answers to your questions, which you might not have had the opportunity to ask, especially during this pandemic. I'm very happy to be here today with Andy Breen. Hi, Sophia, thank you. My name's Andy. I'm an intensive care consultant working in Leeds Teaching Hospitals, uh, St James's in Leeds. I've been an intensive care consultant for 16 or 17 years now. So my first question for you today is, if not medicine, what career would you have picked? I have absolutely no idea. The reason being that I decided at about the age of seven that I wanted to be a doctor. So I don't think I ever thought about anything else and consequently never got any careers advice from anybody because everyone just assumed that I knew what I wanted to do. Lucky thing that I still enjoy it all after that. If you were to go through medical school again, how would you change your approach to it? I think I'd have been more studious. Uh, I went to university uh, having grown up in a small town and I think I'd have uh, probably just reined it in a little bit and uh, spent even more time studying medicine than I did. Uh, but other than that, I don't think I'd have changed an awful lot. It was um, a fantastic experience being at medical school. So what would you say is the most challenging aspect of your job right now? I would say that the most challenging aspect of my job is more the ethical decision making rather than the actual clinical management of patients. Um, I've been doing this for a long time now. I'm very experienced and there's not a huge amount that will phase me from a clinical perspective, but there isn't a day goes by where we don't have difficult ethical decisions to make. And that's because uh, the NHS has got more work to do than it can do. And we frequently have to make difficult choices about prioritizing and allocating resources. So it's, it can be really, really challenging. It can be something that you take home with you and think about. Uh, that's, that's more difficult than anything in terms of uh, clinically looking after patients. Do you think any regrets have stemmed from that? No, but I could see that it's, a, it's something that could cause a lot of regret or um, dis distress. Uh, people talk a lot about moral distress when they, uh, when, when they make decisions that are really, really hard. So uh, I think that it, we're, we're good at teaching people how to make good decisions and I, I like to educate people on ethical decision making uh, just to try and minimise that, that moral distress that people might otherwise feel. So working especially in the ICU, it can take a massive toll on you mentally. How would you deal with this? Uh, undoubtedly it can leave its mark. Um, but I think the best way of dealing with it is appreciating that it can leave its mark and knowing that it can have an impact on you. And because of, um, and with that, having a number of different coping strategies. One of those is, of course, to understand how to make a, an ethically sound decision in the first place. And after that, appreciate the impact it could have on you. Make sure that you, you look after yourself in the times that you're out of work. So uh, yeah, don't live the job. Um, leave the job at the end of the day and, uh, and live the rest of your life. So when you are dealing with these moral dilemmas, when the correct decision isn't very clear cut and you're dealing with people's lives as well, is there a specific way that you go into making that decision? I 
remember that I'm just human as well as everyone else and everyone's just trying to do the very best that they can. And I'm never in any doubt about that. I'm always 100% sure that the people who are trying to make the best decisions are doing it uh, with the patient absolutely in mind at the centre of, uh, of, of the decision they're trying to make. And I would always remind people to, uh, to just check in with themselves, um, have a word with themselves uh, if, if they're ever thinking um, that they are about to do something really difficult, do something really challenging uh, in, terms of, in terms of making, making a big decision. Uh, just remind yourself that, uh, that you're only human and that everyone's trying to do their best. So does the decision fall on you or do you consult with others beforehand? Um, frequently, uh, the decision making falls on an individual despite all of our efforts to make sure that every single thing that we do is led by multi-specialty teams, um, ultimate responsibility will often fall on the senior clinician for a decision that he or she has to make. Uh, and, and, and that can weigh on you, particularly in the early years of your career as a senior doctor. Um, as the years go by, you get more comfortable with it. Um, but, but yeah, you can, you can be solely uh, responsible for a decision that the whole team has maybe uh, come together to agree on, but that uh, ultimately um, responsibility will, will fall to that one individual. So what's an average day at work like for you? Depends what I'm doing. Um, if there is such a if, thing, of course. Yeah, but well, I've got lots of different responsibilities. and. Uh, so, so some days I'll be working as an intensive care consultant, other days I'll be working as an anaesthetist in the operating theatre and other days I'll be working as a medical manager uh, running our department and working with the, uh, the management teams in the hospital. But I don't think anybody goes into medical school with wide-eyed ambitions of becoming a medical manager. <laughs> they, uh, they go into medical school looking forward to a career in clinical medicine, looking after patients and that's still the thing I enjoy doing most. So I, uh, I arrive at 8 o'clock in the morning and we have a handover with the night team. So the night team will tell us all of the new patients that have been brought in during the, uh, during the night of the intensive care unit and they'll tell us about any problems that have arisen during the night with the patients that we, uh, that, that we, we already knew were in there. We'll get that handover and we'll wish them a good day's rest and they'll go off and get some sleep. And then we start going around seeing all of the patients on our intensive care unit. So we've got a lot of intensive care beds in our intensive care units in Leeds and that takes time. Every patient has to be seen methodically and thoroughly uh, before we do the ward round. And th at that point we walk together as a team to every single patient on the intensive care unit and that is delivered by not just the doctors, but by the, uh, the nursing staff, the allied health professionals, such as physiotherapists, dietitians, speech and language therapists, um, pharmacists, microbiologists. It's, uh, it's, it's a big concern where we look at absolutely every aspect of the patient management. We make a plan for the day uh, that will involve changing plans because yesterday's plans are, are, are not working or, um, or maybe changing plans because somebody's making faster progress than we thought. 
We'll plan discharges for patients who are ready to leave the intensive care unit and get back to a less high dependency sort of area. Um, and then we uh, will make a list of things that need to be done. So procedures, um, trips to different parts of the hospital, maybe patients need CT scans or other imaging, maybe they need to go to the operating theatre, maybe they need just a trip to the front door to see daylight and, um, and, and maybe see some family, something like that. Um, we have to speak to, we have to communicate with all of the families. Now that used to be something that they would come in and join us in the hospital for and they could see their loved one and we could talk to them um, at the bedside, we could talk to them outside of the intensive care environment. That's been one of the most difficult parts of the pandemic is families being unable to come into hospital to see their loved ones. It's so, so hard. So we're spending loads of time on the phone or on Zoom calls. That would be my next question as well. How has your, your daily life at work changed due to the COVID-19 pandemic? That's been the big one. Yeah. Uh, it's been absolutely heartbreaking to tell people over the phone that somebody is doing badly or may die um, and for them to have not seen what, what got them to that stage. We're at a point now where we can sometimes bring families in uh, a little more regularly, uh, particularly if their loved one is not doing well. Um, but th yeah, th th that has been the big change for me, is the way that we communicate with, with patients' families. And of course, infection prevention practices. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. every, everyone in the country has dealt with that, and, uh, and it's been the same in hospital, although obviously ten times more rigorous. Uh, there wasn't a freedom day in hospital, everybody's doing exactly what they've been doing uh, the whole time. So it's, uh, it, it's, been, it's been fast moving for us just the way it has for, for everybody in every other walk of life. Whether you're working in a supermarket and you're dealing with the public there, whether you're working in an office or a factory and you're keeping each other safe. Uh, it's probably been the same for us as it has been for everyone else. So how do you see the practice of medicine, particularly in the ICU, changing in the future? So I'll speak probably about the intensive care unit in the first instance there. There are the practices based around COVID. We are planning a life with COVID always being in our intensive care unit. I don't ever see a time where we'll have no patients with COVID in our intensive care unit. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that maybe parts of the year it goes away. I think that the very most that we can hope for is that it becomes a seasonal uh, illness, um, but I fear that it'll, it, it'll be uh, constant and endemic within our intensive care units. We'll need to be bigger, I think, as a consequence. I think if there's always going to be patients with COVID and we're still trying to do all of the things that we always did, then we'll need to be bigger, we'll need to have more staff, we'll need to have more doctors, and we'll need to... Uh, expand over the years uh, to become a bigger specialty. We'd already identified that before the pandemic, that we needed to be bigger, we needed more capacity, more staff. The Nightingale Hospital was something that was done um, in direct response to the pandemic, but in fact, even before COVID existed, we already projected that we were going to have to be bigger. We are Without factoring in the pandemic? You without think? factoring in wow. the pandemic, absolutely. Um, if you consider that people are having more complex um, procedures in hospital, sicker people are being offered treatments that maybe in years gone by they wouldn't have been offered. So 
using uh, heart surgery as an example, um, people who are people are surviving much more complex heart procedures at older ages, but of course it means that they need to spend longer in the intensive care unit. There are always new treatments that are being offered to people, uh, advances for example in haematology, uh, treatment of, um, of leukemias, things like that. A lot of their patients now need longer in the intensive care unit to get through their planned treatment. So life expectancy has obviously increased in the past few years. And now I think medicine is trying to focus more on health span rather than the lifespan of a human. People's expectations from healthcare generally are increasing. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's no doubt about it. Where previously people would have uh, accepted that, oh, I'm, I'm too old, I won't, I won't have that treatment. They're, they're more willing uh, to undergo just about anything to, uh, to try and get over whatever their current illness is. So intensive care is going to become more and more part of that. So yeah, we're going to get bigger. We're going to well, we're going to have to get bigger to meet these expectations. So with intensive care, were there any defining moments in in med school or before that that drew you to it? In med school, no, I didn't. I don't think I'd really decided what direction I wanted to head in. Um, I'd found it all interesting without being bowled over by anything in particular. I was drawn first into anaesthesia as a career um, and I was working in the A&E department at the time and a sick patient came in that needed uh, to be admitted to intensive care. I called the anaesthesia team who support that in a lot of hospitals and the person that came down was my housemate and he came down at two o'clock in the morning with a consultant who was with him every step of the way, training him every step of the way and I just thought this, this looks amazing. I don't see anybody else being shadowed by their consultant at two o'clock in the morning. This looks great. So I, I then immediately looked for a career in anaesthesia wow. and within anaesthesia got drawn into intensive care because the two often work very closely together. So how would the ICU compared to other specialties? Would it perhaps be more intense? Every specialty has got an element of that. There are some uh, specialties, um, and we're speaking about hospital specialties here, where they're not dealing with life and death, they are dealing with um, people who really, really need them. Um, so comparing uh, my routine to that of a dermatologist or an orthopaedic surgeon is very, very difficult. Uh, they're, they're very, very different careers. Um, but then there are people who work in, in surgical specialties and acute medical specialties where they've got exactly those same um, sort of immediate acute uh, life-saving responsibilities. So intensive care is certainly not the only place where, uh, where those pressures exist. Um, yeah. And yeah, you, you, can, you can make your career choice um, based not just around the pressures that you might be under, but, uh, but, but your, your interests, your scientific interests, your academic interests. Well, I suppose your interest in intensive care originally stemmed from anaesthesia. Absolutely. I was drawn to anaesthesia because it just, I had a housemate who was singing the praises of that particular career uh, and it just made, made good sense to, uh, to give it a try. So Andy, would you be happy for your two sons to pursue a career in medicine? if they wanted to. I'm not pushing them. Uh, one of them um, has expressed some interest and I've told him 
I think you'd make a really lovely doctor. I think you'd be such a nice doctor. I think that you've got all of those qualities um, that would make you somebody that patients would feel reassured and happy to be with. So in that respect, I've encouraged him because I think that he's really well suited to it. What I haven't said is, yeah, you should totally do that. One of them um, has expressed some interest and I've told him, I think you'd make a really lovely doctor. I think you'd be such a nice doctor. I think that you've got all of those qualities um, that would make you somebody that patients would feel reassured and happy to be with. So in that respect, I've encouraged him because I think that he's really well suited to it. What I haven't said is, yeah, you should totally do that. Um, <laughs> because I want him to make his mind up. He sees me working very hard. He sees me coming home and leaving in the middle of the night. Um, so he might think I don't want any of that, but he also hears me speaking enthusiastically about it. So he might, he might want to. So I'd be very happy for him. It's a great career. Are there any particular highlights during your career so far? There are little individual patient cases where somebody's done so well against all the odds and you've known that you've played your part in, in helping them. There are achievements that you make throughout your career that have maybe been part of longer term projects, whether you've, whether you've uh, come up with a quality improvement idea that's taken three years to really get off the ground and another two years to, to complete. So you get different kinds of highlights. I'm really, really proud of some of the things that I've done um, that have been long-term projects. For example, I, um, I put together a, a training scheme that taught people how to learn point-of-care echocardiography. So uh, we, with the people who are not experts in scanning people's hearts at the bedside, you can teach them how to do a basic scan and make some very quick diagnoses. And um, myself and some uh, colleagues from around the country who were all doing the same thing got together, put together a national training programme that's been a massive success and is now uh, embedded in intensive care training. Everybody tries to get this qualification during their training, wow. no matter where they are in the country now. Things like that I feel so, so proud of. There are some things that you can see are never going to change, which is there will never be all the resource that the NHS needs to treat every single patient to a gold standard. Uh, that's, that's never been the case in any healthcare system, and I think that every doctor will always uh, be challenged by the inability to do everything that's needed for every patient. Um, and it's, it's an economic reality that I think is possibly uh, going to get yet more challenging. Um, the post-pandemic economy looks like it's going to be a very difficult one for the NHS to, to thrive in. Um, and I think that doctors will have to find new and innovative ways of doing the best for their patients. But there will always be the challenges of introducing new treatments and there are always new treatments coming out. And these challenges are things that, uh, that doctors tend to relish rather than uh, shy away from. There's always people who are really enthusiastic about um, introducing new innovations. Uh, so those challenges will be there as well. Well, I suppose innovation is a key component of science and there's obviously a massive part of science in medicine as well. 
Absolutely. Um, but yeah, medicine is not purely a scientific discipline. Yeah. It's uh, so you don't necessarily choose a career of scientific advancement. You might choose a career of um, ad advancing a service or make, just making things better. Well, I'd say you've definitely done that with the training scheme that you set up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to think that that's, uh, that that's making a real difference to uh, to patient care. But yeah, patient outcomes are one thing that the sci scientists will try to improve. People will often uh, choose to uh, advance patient experience instead to make sure that people actually have a better experience of healthcare. Not necessarily improving outcomes, but improving uh, their interactions and um, and and their their overall feel when they're either when they're when they're in a healthcare setting. So, do you think there are any right or wrong reasons for wanting to go into medicine? Wrong reasons. Um, a perceived status amongst others. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do it for that at all. Um, you might think that it will be great to tell everyone how amazing you are and. Uh, and, and you, you, you've done all of these things, but the world's full of amazing people, and they're all doing amazing things. There is there is a perception um, that, and, and I certainly felt this before I did my air levels. I thought there's, there's some kind of superiority, or it's the, it's the wrong word, but the, 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 when I was growing up, the local GP and the local consultants were sort of held in some kind of high esteem. And I don't think that, well, either I was right or wrong in perceiving that, but that's what I thought was going on. Mm. And it's important not to, for that not to be your motivation to go into it. Yeah, and I guess there's the idea that there's a, you know, the doctor or the lawyer, the most prestigious career paths that someone can take. 100%. And I would urge anyone to consider why they're going to medical school. If you're looking for a stimulating and enjoyable career then absolutely uh, go there if you're looking so that looking to go into something so that people can hold you in high esteem then question that you might you, you might then choose something else that'll hold you in high esteem instead <laughs> and it, it will always be the wrong motivation would you say there are any specific right reasons for wanting to go into medicine knowing knowing that what will lie ahead of you, if you want it, is fulfilling, stimulating, always surprising, always interesting, um, secure. I think that you can be sure that there isn't going to be a dwindling demand for healthcare. So it's a safe bet if you want to be an employee uh, rather than an entrepreneur. Um, it's it's a safe bet in that respect as well. But again, I wouldn't wouldn't go for medicine because it's a, it's a safe bet for uh, for job security. Do it because uh, you're into it. Do it because it sparks something in you. Uh, so I would say that I went into it for the wrong reasons because at the age of seven, my mum was telling me, uh, "Look at the nice car that the GP's got." Um, but as I got after I graduated was when I really found uh, the things that interested me. So do you perceive medicine as a vocation? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Um, if you're not drawn to it and if you're not into it, then you won't enjoy it the same way, in, in, in my opinion. Um, and if that's what a vocation is, uh, then, then, yeah, you, you probably shouldn't 
be, be going into it unless, unless you really think that this is for you. So to pursue a medical career, do you think you have to be 100% involved in medicine or is it okay to have other interests as well? There, there will always be those people in healthcare and in science and everywhere else and they are the pioneers, they are the people who absolutely drive it forward. People talk about the guy with the, whose, whose car is always the last one in the car park and um, occasionally my car is the last one in the car park but that's often because I'm, I'm busy rather than um, I'm, uh, I'm just dedicating my whole life to it. Uh, we need the people who will dedicate their whole life to it but we definitely don't need the whole of healthcare to be populated by those people. Um, you need rounded people who are going to go out and enjoy life as well. Because at the end of the day that's what medicine is, it's not purely scientific. People's skills are so important. You can be uh, academically the finest talent in your field, um, but you still need to be able to relate to the people that you're there to look after, absolutely. So if you could give one piece of advice to an aspiring medical student, in one minute let's say, what would it be? Know why you're going into it. Uh, so we've probably covered it and that's probably a The reasons out. why not, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah know, know the reasons why you're doing it, know the reasons why not. and. Uh, remember that everybody in healthcare is is human and is fallible and um, you know makes imperfect choices all the way along and uh, and that's that's just part of your development as a medical student um, and then as a doctor. So, do you love what you do, Andy? Yes. Look, now I'm I'm a pretty bouncy, glass half full kind of person anyway, so I'm very cheerful and optimistic and this would fit with my personality undoubtedly but yes i i really love all the different parts of my job whether it's managing the service being an anaesthetist or being an intensive care doctor uh, yeah it's unequivocal from me I'm, sh I'm sure not everybody would say that but i do that's great so andy i've got one last question for you if you could pick any superpower what would it be is it something that is going to help my career in medicine or can I just fly? You can fly if you'd I'll like fly. to fly.